It is so good to see everybody in this room, and especially Lucan people. Hey, of course I'm biased. I'm from Liberty University College of Osteopathic Medicine in Central Virginia, Lynchburg, Virginia, and I have some of the students here. I'm really excited to be here this afternoon. So, I hope you're having a good time at the conference so far. I'm excited. I'm glad I get to come this year. Last year would have been my first time. And then it all went virtual, so I was so disappointed. But I'm glad that we were able to get together this year and meet in person. So I'm really um, thankful for the opportunity to talk to you all today about something that you're not going to see here if you're practicing in North America or United States of America. But if you have any interest at all or desire to practice outside, of here, if you're going thinking of doing it, even if a short-term mission trip to Southeast Asia especially, or you're going to parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, this is something you need to be aware of and you need to prepare for. So as we get into it this um, afternoon, I would love to start us off in prayer. So if you don't mind, I'll get us going. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being our God. I want to thank you for my brothers and sisters that have the heart of compassion to take the gospel of Jesus on the wings of healthcare, education, whatever platform that you've given to us to let everybody know how much you care and how you are the only answer to all the questions that we have in life. I pray that the time we'll spend together this afternoon will be empowering, will be encouraging, and ultimately will bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, we're going to get into this. We don't have a whole lot of time, and we have so much to talk about. So, I'm going to get going. There's some of the slides that I have a lot of information on, because I know that we're all at different stages. There's some of us who have a lot of experience working in this um, area, and this is just a refresher for you. There's some that... This is new to you and you want to learn as much as you can. The thing I will say is that this um, PowerPoint is going to be made available by um, GMHC, so you can get this information later on. But if you want to take a picture because the slides got lots of information for you, please do so because I am not going to go through every line necessarily. I want to highlight the things that are really critical for us to know. So, I have no financial disclosure. I'm going to talk about some products, but I don't have anything in affiliation or any benefit financially that comes to me from some of those products. So, from the objectives that you would have looked at when you look at the brochure, this is some of the things we're going to learn together this afternoon. I highlighted here. But I want to talk about three things, especially that I don't want you to forget. At the very end, I'll hopefully get to talk, to talk again about them. One is that screening is really critical, and that helps with early identification and early intervention. And we do have a very low-tech screening tool that we're going to emphasize and talk about today. The other thing is we need to make a decision about where to care for the child. So we've screened, we've identified that this child has acute malnutrition, for example. Who goes home? and who gets to stay. That's another, another thing I want us to talk about. And then we'll look at community engagement. Being, having a community that's able to support the children. We want to treat them, but we all agree that prevention is way better. We would rather have every child well-nourished and not have to be chasing the disease. We want to prevent it altogether. So we'll be talking about that as well the balance of taking care of every child that has the condition and what the community can do to prevent the condition from happening. Or when it does happen, what the community can do to ensure that we have a good outcome. So those are the things that, if I tell you in a nutshell, the key things that we're going to be covering today, those will be those three things. So let's look at the burden of undernutrition. Why even talk about undernutrition? Why is it such a deal? If we look at the statistics, and we've had a a lot of good talk about what data does for us. It galvanizes us to act and equips us to act appropriately. 
about 45.4 million children all over the world are wasted. And out of those, 13.6 million have severe wasting. We'll get into some of these definitions as we go along. And if you look at the numbers, you find that 70% of those children are in Asia. So between Asia and sub-Saharan Africa especially, over 96% of these 45.4 million children live in those places. So that's why I was saying to you, if you have any intention of going to either of those locations, you need to be equipped with this information. So when we look at the underlying factors, and we'll look at a lot of risk factors that lead to this uh, undernutrition and malnourished, malnourished states in children especially, we see that this shows us a map of the percentage of the community or the population that lives in these areas that have inadequate food. That is, is, there's food insecurity in this community. Up to 60% of some of these populations live perpetually in a state of food insecurity. And you know, we all know how it is. Children are the most vulnerable. They are the ones that are at the bottom of the, of the, of the ladder when it comes to resources being, especially food resources, being made available for them because they cannot fight for themselves. They can't go out and get and farm or get a job or do anything. So if, there's, if the entire population is this severely affected, you know the children will be even more severely affected in these populations. So when we look at malnutrition as a whole, we, look, we have a big umbrella, and that covers those who are undernourished and those who are overnourished. Both are bad. And for children, both will kill them. It's just that one will kill them faster. The undernourishment will kill them faster than the overnourishment because of undernourishment. Over time, the diseases, cardiovascular diseases, will develop as they get older. So the first five years are really, really critical. When we're looking especially at low-income and middle-income countries, the first five years are really critical. If a child can survive up to five, we know that the likelihood of them going beyond that is much higher. So we're not going to look at those who are overnourished at all in this session. We're going to focus on those who are undernourished because that's what we, we can do something about in the immediate period. Again, why are we talking about undernutrition? Because we know that the five killer diseases of children under five years old, including pneumonia, um, diarrheal diseases, uh, neonatal disorders, all of them, Underlying those, you find that for those who would die, 45% of them have some degree of undernutrition or the other. So it's a huge deal. And that alone accounts for about 3 million children, deaths in children under 5 years old. There's been some movement and some progress that's been made over the last 20 years as this has been tracked by WHO, UNICEF, World Food Program, but there's still huge room for, for improvement. I know we will all agree that no child, there's no child that we would, that I know, that you know, that you would say it's okay for them to, to die because of undernutrition. So yes, progress is being made, but so much more can be done, and that's what we want to talk about, identifying the issues and hopefully coming out, seeing what we can do at whatever level where we can. I don't want us to go away feeling so overwhelmed and be like, okay, so where do we start? There are little things that we can do in whatever capacity, and we're going to highlight that. So there's some hope down the road as we talk, continue this afternoon. So we do know that any degree of wasting at all increases the risk of death in any child that's affected. And as the degree of nutrition gets worse, the risk of death increases. So let's look at certain risk, um, odds ratios that we have here. A child that's severely wasted is nine times more likely to die from undernutrition and whatever secondary disease that they have than a child that is not severely wasted. When we look at Staunton, which oftentimes when we look at, when we just think about Stanton, we think, oh, they're just not going to achieve their, their potential adult height. There's so much more to it than just the height itself. It also increases the risk of death four times compared to a child that is not stunted. So even those who survive, 
So we've talked about risk of death. Among the survivors, there's so much long-term impact that it has on their cognitive ability, and that, of course, impacts the ability to learn and eventually their economic and productivity as adults. So whatever we can do as early as possible goes a long way in making a difference. So I've thrown out a few things right there. We've talked about wasting, stunting. What do those mean? So I'm going to kind of get us through some definitions so we're all singing from the same songbook. So undernutrition, the big name we've talked about that, it's just where under. The nutrition is inadequate. But we're looking at not just energy, we're looking at protein. We're looking at micronutrients. Micronutrients especially is one that's hidden. Because when a child has um, micronutrient deficiency, it's not as obvious as when they're wasted because they have calorie um, or protein deficiency. And that's the one thing we don't want to forget. And so we're looking at the different categories where there's insufficient intake or where intake is adequate but then absorption is a problem. So I'm going to take us to this table because it's going to be so much easier to walk us through. I'm a very visual person, and I know that for all of us, words, um, a picture can be worth a thousand words. So let's look at this together. So I have to stay close to this so you can bear with me as I'm pointing from here. <laughs> We're all seeing the same thing, okay? So that very top box is a big umbrella under nutrition. So we can break it into two. Primary and secondary. Primary will break it down further to chronic and acute. Acute is the one that can result in death in a short period because it happens so quickly. And that's what we call wasting. And that's what we're going to use mostly when we're talking about acute malnutrition. In this discussion today, we will be talking about wasting. And then under chronic, there's an offshoot where we put micronutrient deficiency there where we, that we refer to as hidden hunger. And then we break down acute malnutrition further to protein deficiency and energy deficiency. And, we, and we're going to, again, break that down further by degree of severity. So for those of us who are maybe you've read the older textbook, I don't want to say you're older necessarily, <laughs> because, of course, I put myself in that category as well. Those of us who were used to marasmus and kwashiorkor, <laughs> Those are not terms we use readily anymore these days. We tend to use severe acute malnutrition, intermittent um, malnutrition, and we'll get into all of that. So that way you know that those words are still somewhere out there. It's just not what we use on a on daily any longer. So then when we come down to, again, for those of us who are interested in research and you want to see the Z-score, you want to see the standard deviation, if we're looking at definitions, Wasting, severe wasting, stunting, severe stunting. We're looking at standard, two standard deviations. If it's less than two standard deviations from the mean, here we're using WHO growth standards. And if, there's, if it's less than, if two standard deviations is just underweight, if we're looking at weight alone. Stunting, if we're looking at height alone. And then we're talking wasting if we're doing height, weight um, for height or length, depending on the age of the child. And then if it's less than three standard deviations in any of those categories, it's determined to be severe. So now I've walked you through the definitions. Now we're going to narrow down on wasting, which, again, I've told you is what we call acute malnutrition for the purpose of our discussion. So the WHO has welded it down to where we can identify moderate acute malnutrition, MAM, which is different from NAM, right, which is what we can, yes, ma'am, that's not, this is ma'am, M-A-M, and then severe acute malnutrition, which is SAM. If there's a SAM in here, it's not your SAM, that we're talking about the short form of SAM, well, but it's severe acute malnutrition. And then the GAM is what we use for um, a global, it's called global acute malnutrition, which is used to assess at the population level. So MAM and SAM were used basically for each individual assessment for a child, but GAM is what gives us kind of like the picture of what's happening in a specific population. So how do we define both of those? So when we look at medium, uh, moderate acute malnutrition and severe acute malnutrition, we use 
the mid-upper arm circumference, and we'll talk about that shortly. And for those who will use Z-score, we'll, we'll use the standard deviations. There's a specific number. So if you like millimeters, more than centimeters, just move it to one decimal point. Third grade, right? I, I think third grade we learned that. Hey, it was a long time ago. So if you use millimeters, you find some um, documents that will use millimeters. So it will be 115 to 124 centimeters. And then for severe acute, if it's less than 115 millimeters or 11.5 centimeters, it will be severe acute malnutrition. The other line I wanted to notice there is the edematous malnutrition, which is what we historically refer to as kwashioko. As long as there's pitin pedal edema, it is severe acute malnutrition. The, of course, the, we have to have a definition here. That's why you see absent. If you find, severe, if you find um, edema in any child, it's a severe acute malnutrition period, and we treat it like that. So let's look at these pictures. So this child to the left is wasted. That's marasmus and has no edema at all. The other child on the other side is also severely malnourished, but edematous because of severe protein deficiency, hyperproteinemia, hypoalbuminemia. So both of them are really sick, and you can tell from their look, they're apathetic. They're just not interested in anything. That is so unusual for a child. A two-year-old is into everything and anything. They're super curious. They want to get, you have to take them back and pull them off from things. But when the child is sitting and they, just, they have no interest in what's going on around them, that is a sign of severe illness. And those are soft signs that we need to be very aware of. So the purpose of this is to kind of give you a little comparing between marasmus and kwashioko. And the thing I want to draw attention to here is that with edematous malnutrition, you see that the dermatologic man manifestations are so another risk factor in themselves because the more severe it is, the more the likely the child will get a secondary bacterial infection because the skin breaks down. So, for, oh, so somebody who already has... Um, an immune compromise from the infection, uh, from the uh, um, malnutrition, I mean, and then getting an infection on top of it is just a double whammy. So that's why part of the factors that result in increased mortality um, in children that have edematous malnutrition. So I'll talk briefly about micronutrient deficiencies because, like I said earlier on, it is the hidden hunger because uh, unless the is really, really severe, and you're looking for it, oftentimes it, they, it's not as obvious as um, marasmus and kwashioko. Yes, they might have edema, but you have to get close to, to do an examination for um, iron deficiency. The reason it's really critical for us to pay attention to micronutrient deficiencies is because of the underlying processes, biochemical processes, enzymatic processes that are really dependent on those um, micronutrients that when they're absent, it can really impact the outcome of a child in the short term as well as in the long term. So when we're looking at um, micronutrient deficiencies, three stand out, especially in children. Iron deficiency that results in anemia and has its own complications if it's untreated. Vitamin A deficiency that results in blindness, and we know that that in itself has potential risk factor for morbidity and mortality and um, zinc deficiency. So if any child has um, diarrheal disease, regardless of their nutritional status, you have to assume that there's zinc deficiency and you have to pay attention and treat it. Iodine deficiency, particularly in pregnant women. So we know that with newborns, we can assume that a mom's nutritional status is going to be reflected in the child. The more severely malnourished the mother is, it will reflect in the child. So low birth weight and all of those things so we want to make sure that the health of the pregnant woman is taken care of because it's going to affect the health of the newborn and um, on from there. So as we continue, I want to introduce a little kid to you. We're going to call him Prince. And he's going to help us in our discussion and all the, how um, we deal with undernutrition. So this is Prince. Who can guess? How old do you think Prince is? Yes. 
three years old. Okay. Anybody else want to guess? Two? I hear two. So we all agree that this is not a baby. But he's, he does look really... Yeah, of course, he has a wizened old man face, but when you look at his body, he's really little for a two-year-old. So we estimate that he's at least 18 months old, and his mom is 21 years old. She's young, but the prince is not her first. Uh, not, is not her only child. Prince is just her youngest for right now. She she is in the village with the, with her mom, who is providing support for her. The dad has to be out of town, go to the city to get to get work. So um, that's a situation that we see that we have uh, with Med Prince. So imagine that you're on a mission trip, and I've been to Cambodia. That's how far I've gone um, on the in the Asian continent. I hope to go somewhere else someday. Now that COVID is out, thank God, thank God. So um, let's imagine that that's where um, we are. So what are some of the risk factors that we know could have contributed to Prince's status where we're meeting him right now? Helpers? Okay, excellent. Thank you. So the, the answer is that there's a large family, and lots, of, lots of mouths to feed, and there's just not enough to go around. And he's not going to be number one priority. In this situation, other factors. Sex. Pardon? Sex. Sex. His gender. The fact that he's a male. Um, he um, tell me a little bit more about that. Male, maybe um, more desired, so they get better food than girls. Oh, okay. But Prince is a boy, so right. so he so males are not desired. Is what you no, say? Males are desired. Are desired. So he might get more food than the girls. So in this situation, maybe the girls are even in a worse state, is what you're saying. So absolutely. So we're seeing priests in this state. Let's imagine what his three-year-old sister will look like, or four-year-old sister. One more. Yes, please. Thank you. Mom's knowledge base as well as her mental health. Absolutely. Maternal education. And we're not talking formal education, classroom education here. It's how much does she know about her own care and the care of the child. And oftentimes we think about health, we don't think about the mental part of it. How is she dealing with the fact that she's, yes, she has a husband, but she's pretty much a single mom taking care of this child and whoever else and her mom and the larger family and the decisions that she has to make on the daily that would impact her health and mental status, and oftentimes there's nobody to talk to about that. She has to just deal with it. So we're going to look at the risk, all the risk factors at different levels because one of the things I want us to take away and remember from our discussion this afternoon is that malnutrition is not entirely a clinical problem. It is more a social problem than a clinical problem. But we have to deal with it from both ends. So this very busy um, framework here was created by UNICEF, so I borrowed it from them. Okay, This is one of the UNICEF conceptual framework on the determinants of maternal and child nutrition. This was updated as recently as last year. And so we're going to look at it from all the different levels. So we'll go from the base. And that base talks about, it's kind of think of it like a concentric circle. The smallest, the next, and the biggest. The, this base is the largest uh, circle. The things that are done at the national, regional, state, commun- uh, uh, state level, governance decisions, political environment that will impact what services and what is available in the community. So that's kind of a larger thing. That's not not very directly impacting that child alone, it impacts the entire community. So now if we bring it, to, uh, bring it a little closer, let's look at the smaller community, the smaller circle now. What food is available? 
What's the immediate environment that that child is living? Do they have access to water? Do they have access to health care? Even if she's sick, who's, how readily available are health services for this family? And then I will bring it to the household. Who gets what? Even when there's food available, when there's meat, who gets the meat? It's usually the adults. It's usually the dad. And then the mom. And then, depending on your age and how, how aggressive you are, you might get some more. So the little the prince is not the one that's going to be prioritized as far as who's going to get it. So we see that all of these factors determine the outcome for survival for the mother, survival for the child, and even um, the quality of their life. So all of these factors are what we need to keep in mind as we think about undernutrition. So we do, like we talked about a little bit, about the mom's health in pregnancy. It would affect the outcome, whether it's the child has low birth weight, small for gestational age. And we, we now have a lot of work that's been done to prove that beyond the first two years, even up to five years, the risk of developing severe acute malnutrition remains if the child is born low birth weight. So taking care of the mom, providing education, providing resources, food, is really important in that um, in that in pregnancy and the first um, few days and years of life. There's um, a documentation that the first thousand days. So we're talking of from conception to the first two years of a child's life, really critical period. That's a period. The first two years as well, the period of most rapid brain development. So we want to make sure that nutrition is adequate because it makes such a big impact in the survival in the immediate period and for the long term. Infections, big deal. And we're going to talk about that. And, of course, the, uh, when there's political unrest, there's humanitarian um, issues, that, again, further threatens food security in any community. So I'm going to go through this real quickly because it shows us a vicious cycle. Undernutrition in and of itself will reduce a child's immunity and ability to fight infections. And so that increases their risk of getting disease. And when they get the disease, if they're undernourished, it makes the disease more severe and makes the duration of the illness last longer. So let's take, for example, diarrheal disease. So that child is probably going to get a worse case and it's going to take a longer time to recover. And so, of course, one is mortality. The other one is that when this child is trying to fight the infection because there's increased demand on the body, it doesn't have an appetite to eat. So, and then the, even when it does eat, the absorption, ability to absorb is reduced. So that worsens the degree of malnutrition or undernutrition. And then that worsens the immune, um, immune system and the cycle just continues. So the goal is that we'll be able to break that cycle at some point. For those of us who love pathophysiology, this slide is for you, okay? We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, though. But the main thing I want to point out here is that biochemical changes that happen, because that's going to be important for us as we talk about appetite tests, because we know that a child, part of what helps us to determine that this child is really sick is the the fact that they don't have appetite. It's not just they don't have a desire to eat, because children love to eat. So when they don't want to eat, it's because beyond just the interest is that the biomedical changes, especially hepatic changes and, and glucose regulation, all of those factors play into the not having an appetite for food. So we're going to move on to assessment. So in our assessment, we want to make sure we get a detailed history, detailed dietary history. We ask the questions to the mom. Of course, she needs to understand that we have to come at it with a heart of compassion. So it's not just that we're just being intrusive. We're asking to gain an understanding of what's available, what's been going on with this child to determine what are we dealing with. And then, of course, other things like immunization status. What's the social history? How many people, how many mouths are there to feed? Somebody talked about that. How many mouths? Who's able to provide what and what's available? And then after we've taken a history, the next thing we want to do is do what we call an appetite test. An appetite test is done with the mom or the caregiver providing food, usually a 
prepackaged food from the um, ready-to-use therapeutic food, and you want to do it in a quiet room, you give them at least half an hour to get that done. Excuse me, somebody's trying to call me. So, we do the appetite test. The first thing you tell the mom is she needs to wash her hands. And then she'll take the smallest bit of it and put it in the child's mouth and give the child time to respond. The biggest thing here that we need to tell the parent is that you cannot force this child to take this food. Because the force that child is to give a false um, premise that this child is interested when they really are not. And if the child is not interested, it's usually a sign that they're really sick. And that will help us determine whether we'll put this child to be treated in the, in the house or they need inpatient care. The next, the most important thing here, and there's are things that we can teach at a low, very low level to healthcare workers, health, community healthcare workers, community health volunteers, but moms can even learn this as well. The next thing is examination. It's not a huge physical exam. You're not using um, sophisticated equipment. We're just using our hands and our, and our, and our observation, a keen sense of observation. Because edema is not enough to see it, you need to prove that it is there and it's peating edema. So you train the healthcare worker to check both feet. You start on the feet, the dozen of the feet, and it's press it down, count three seconds. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, and then they remove the hands, and if there's, if there's um, indentation, that's confirmation that there's edema. But you're not satisfied with just looking at the dozen of the feet. You travel up further to the ankles, to the knees. Then you look at the hands, you look at the face, because it could be more generalized edema, and it's not just pedal edema, and that's what helps us to, to grade the edema and determine how severe it is. But any degree of edema at all already puts that child in severe acute malnutrition and will require inpatient care. So I already talked through this, and I'll show you a picture of how severe edema and how bad it can be when you press, and then you have to keep looking. And you can see from that picture of that little girl that her hands are swollen as well. So this is a child that has generalized edema and will need to be more aggressive in the care of that child. The other thing we're going to talk about, which is a really low tech. So all the things we've talked about right now, appetite test, um, checking for edema, the um, mid-upper arm circumference measurement, they're all very low tech and can be taught to anybody that's a community health worker. They don't have to have the, medical, the level of medical knowledge that we have um, to be um, in the healthcare industry. So I'm going to pass this around. Um, I'll pass on to this side of the room and the other one to this side of the room. So if you just take a look at it and try and see that red, if you move it all the way, like here to the red zone, you see how small, really how small 11.5 centimeter is when you move it around. So you can see that it's really a, a, a severe wasting in the child by the time it gets, to that, it gets to that point. So moms can have this, and they can use it at home. They can be taught how to use it. Um, healthcare workers, community healthcare workers can have this. So screening can be done on an ongoing basis, especially when you're in an, a food insecure community. Or we, already, we all know that right before um, the planting season, is when um, food insecurity is at its peak. You encourage mothers to check every two weeks and see where, uh, where they are. And if this child needs to be, um, to be seen and taken to a healthcare facility, we want to make sure that that is done in a timely fashion. Of course, after that screening is done, when they get to the healthcare center, another, the, um, the nurse or whoever is stationed there will repeat it to confirm and then weight, height, and using um, all of those more sophisticated things will happen. But at the basic level, we have very low-tech things, equipment that we can use. So the determination we now need to make is we've done a medium upper arm circumference for, for a little guy, Prince. We have um, done a, a physical exam. From what we can see, we all can agree that it doesn't appear like it has any obvious edema, right? So this is a, 
um, not a Kroshioka. But then we still have to make the decision. Is he going home or is he going to stay in a healthcare facility? So what are some of those things that would help us? This, again, is another busy slide, but don't, don't let it intimidate you, okay? <laughs> I'm going to walk us through it. So at the very top, the, the, t- the two on this, the closest to me on my right, my left, oh, left. No, this is my right. Come on. <laughs> this is my right. Closest to me on my right. Those, uh, we have done the case finding. It didn't matter whether it was the mother that found the child or the, or the community health worker that determined based on the um, our tape that we did, the, the band, the meet-up and circumference band, we've identified that there's a problem here and so this child needs to go to the health facility. And when they get there, the, health, the, the staff will check if there's edema. And that's what's going to help determine whether um, this child is going to stay or go home. In addition to that, we already know if there's edema at all, it's going to stay. But if he has other factors, like if he's sick, we're going to talk about some of those that we call the danger signs. Those are going to be the things that will determine the inpatient care. Is, it, is the health facility in the community adequate or we need to find a higher level of care that that child will need to be transported to? So these are the things that would, would take into consideration to determine what level of care this child is going to get. Thank God for protocols and algorithms. We still need to break it down to case by case, every child. So the goal here in looking at the management principles is that we want to make sure that it's an integrated approach, integrated in the sense that we know that it's not just one factor that determines the acute malnutrition state that we're dealing with right now. So we want to incorporate other things like basic hand washing, making sure there's access to good water, uh, and all of the immunization. So we want to make nutrition a part of a whole package and not deal with it in isolation. And then, of course, we'll talk about prevention and all the other things we can do. A lot of studies have proven that when we do have an integrated approach, we get a better outcome compared to when we do when we try to do um, the nutrition care in isolation. So when we look at, now we're making our decision. We've decided that Prince has acute malnutrition. Is it moderate? No. In this situation, it is severe. Um, does he have complications? Um, we'll find out in a minute. Does he have an appetite? for the food that we're offering him. If it's yes, that he has an appetite and has no complications, he gets to stay home. And we'll have a process where we can monitor and um, support the mom. If he has any complications whatsoever, or he has no appetite for the food that's been offered, he will have to stay. Well, we know that even when we do, um, so I've talked about this so many times already, the, the thing I do want to um, emphasize to us is that even when we do recognize that the child needs to stay, we need to work with the context, within the context of the family. And there's several factors that could make the mom not be willing to stay. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So I want to make sure that we cover some of this that we consider complications that the WHO refers to as danger signs. So if the child is unable to drink or breastfeed, is vomiting everything, it's um, lethargic, unconscious, or has convulsions, maybe history of it not too long ago or is going on right now, of course, that child is going nowhere. It's not going home. It's going to have to stay at a healthcare facility. If the child gets to be hospitalized, these are the 10 steps that we'll need to follow. We need to make sure that we assume hypoglycemia. Even if you can't test it, you assume it and treat the child as though they're hypoglycemic. You want to keep them of warm to prevent hypothermia and all these other steps that will follow. In the initial period, is stabilization that's key, that's top on our mind, and then we'll proceed to what we'll call rehabilitation phase. So there's a feeding protocol that is encouraged. The biggest thing is a frequency, small, frequent feeding, even through the night. In that stabilization phase, this is a feeding protocol. The WHO has what we call the F75 and F100. F75 is what you give in the, um, in the initial period, and you have to go very strictly with these volumes to um, prevent 
to aggressive feeding, which can in itself lead to increased mortality. Because remember what we said about the biomedical change, biochemical changes and liver function that's affected. We need to go easy so that the system doesn't get, is not shocked and then completely shuts down and that increases the risk of death in this um, population. So then, of course, after we start caring for them, we look at other parameters to determine if this child is ready to transition back home because we don't want to keep them in the center for too long either because of certain risk factors that they're exposed to. So clinical assessment is really key. We're checking the mid upper arm circumference still, but clinical assessment is what we want to use to be our guide. So this mom, for example, Prince's mom would say to her, you need to stay. This is in the best interest of the child. But then she tells you, I'm the only one that can work in my family. My husband is out in the city, but while we're here, I'm the only one that can go out and get things from the market and do a little bits and pieces that I can do. My mom is not able to do anything on her own. So what are you going to do in that situation? She has other children. And maybe her, her, her nieces and nephews come to the house as well that she has to take care of. Those are the things that we need to take into context as we deal and relate to this mom as we want to help her. Another thing that's a reality is a risk of cross-infection when they are in that inpatient setting. Especially if this child, the prince might not have come in with um, diarrhea, but then the other child in the room over might have diarrhea in it. So we need to be aware of that and be very strict with hand washing and all the little things that we would do to keep um, infections at bay. So we have found out that community management of acute malnutrition works. The majority of children that have acute malnutrition will be cared for in the community. In the community. So if we are able to create resources, centers, create ad- enough um, knowledge within the community, we can keep those children in the community. We can care for them in the community. It's cost-effective. Um, it increases knowledge in, in the community as well. And we can integrate other things. Like we found that that integrated approach is what works. We can integrate other things and take this as an opportunity as well. So when we look at um, integrated management of acute malnutrition or community management of acute malnutrition, same, it's just different countries use different titles. These are the components of it. You see that community outreach is a huge part of this. We've been talking about the other circle or semicircle on that side with the three little circles which deal at the individual level, each child. We've talked about that for the past um, half hour and, and more. And the community outreach part is what I want us to focus on from this point on. So when we're looking at community outreach, we want to do a baseline assessment. How's, what's the burden of undernutrition in this community? Oftentimes, that's a hard thing to find out because nobody knows. And sometimes um, the Ministry of Health or the health system is not in part equipped to make that, to make such, do such a survey or have an answer for that, for us and that. So that's part of what we are thinking about as we're becoming part of the community. We ask those questions. And then when we have a fair um, picture, no matter how, maybe sometimes even when you go on UNICEF and WHO website, those information would not be available there. So we talk to the people, talk to the local healthcare workers. We find uh, um, information. Then we have to mobilize the community. This is not something that can be done alone. Not one person in any community is enough to fight the, 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 the battle against acute malnutrition. So everybody needs to come together. So we need to get outreach workers um, educated. We need to equip them. It's not a whole lot of education like we've seen. Screening, determining who gets to stay in hospital, who gets to go home. And then we'll talk about some of the um, resources that are available. So when we look at this, what's the community health worker going to be doing? They need to be trained in taking out accurate measurements. They need to know um, when to give um, ready to use therapeutic foods. They need to know when a child needs to be, to be um, treated at home. And there has to be frequent follow-up. 
whether it's weekly, bi-weekly, depends on how many people you have, depends on what time of the year it is, and all of that. However, for it to work in the community, we have to have a good referral system. Because when they do identify a child that needs um, inpatient care, they need to know where to send them. If the, the referral system doesn't exist, then it doesn't really help us um, a whole lot, as much as we would love. So there's a whole group of children that we've not even talked about. Oftentimes, we talk about six months to five years old. Because it's assumed that the first six months, most babies are exclusively breastfed or at least I guess some degree of breastfeeding, but we recognize that they're they're not necessarily malnourished, but they are nutritionally vulnerable. So we need to pay particular attention to them as well. And in that that age group especially, we would target the moms. Maternal education, providing food and resources to the mom, frequent follow-up, checking on the mothers as often as we can will be what will be the centerpiece. So what are the principles of community um, management of acute malnutrition that we want to really focus on? One is coverage and access. That is multi-layered. Oftentimes that's not dependent on you as um, a short-term missionary, long-term missionary, no matter how long or short your involvement is, it's not so much dependent on you because this will depend on policies and what the government is interested in paying attention to and all of that. But, of course, we have a role as advocates in that, um, in, in that situation. Timeliness, which comes with being able to uh, make an, uh, do the screening early enough and make a timely referral. Appropriate care. I'm going to give you the laundry list of all the things that go into the medical care of a child that has acute malnutrition. And then we're in for the long haul because it does take time for these children to come out of that state. So timeliness, screening and referral. We've talked a lot about doing the screening at the home level, the community level. That is something that we would need to emphasize to the parents and caregivers. Appropriate care. When a child has severe acute malnutrition, these are the things that we need to make available. Every child that has severe acute malnutrition gets antibiotics. In most communities, amoxicillin is cheap enough, cheap enough, is available. We worry about things like especially pneumonia. That's the reason we go ahead and give the anti, uh, amoxicillin because if we wait to see the signs of a pneumonia, we might have waited too late because that's one of the major causes of death. Yes, we're worried about um, antibiotic resistance, but hey, we're looking at risk and benefit and in the media period, amoxicillin is part of what we give. Even when they have their real illness, you still give the amoxicillin as part of it. If it's in malaria endemic area, you do anti-malaria treatments. Anti-health means are given as part of um, the treatment protocol. Vaccinations, especially measles, because we know that measles is a killer, of, especially in children that have acute malnutrition, so we want to encourage that. Communities where HIV is a big deal, you follow the national protocol, get them tested, and plug them in with the clinics that are already working in that area. And then, again, we're paying attention to micronutrient deficiencies in these children. Like I said earlier, if the diarrheal illness, you have to assume this zinc deficiency, and you provide zinc at 2 milligrams per kilo per day. And all these other um, levels of vitamin A deficiency and what you provide per age, I put this up here for those who are interested in that level of detail. I know that that's not the case for every one of us. So care for as long as possible, frequent um, visits, very important, interfacing with the family as often as we can, providing the support that they need makes a big difference. So food is what they need, right? So the therapeutic foods have been made available, and a lot of them are brought in, imported, which again is is not ideal, but they're ready, available, you don't have to refrigerate them, they're, they're, um, oil-based, so they, and it doesn't require any preparation. You just open the pack and give it to the child. Um, but there's attempt to make some of them locally. Uh, the ironic thing is it's more expensive to produce locally than the imported ones. There's lots of organizations that are looking at how to reduce that cost. And um, other forms of food that's available is the fortified blended flowers. And a lot of countries are um, investing in making fortification centers available at the community level. 
one of the big advantages of the F, um, FBS is that you can make it available to the whole family. Because again, remember, if we're trying to feed just the child, the child is one member of a larger family. There are many mouths to feed. And if we're feeding that child alone, the other family members are doing without. And the other children in that family, you know, it's only a matter of time before they also would come down with severe acute malnutrition. So there are several different forms of them. Um, USAID has in the, the, the USAID has a form, but the one that's kind of, for, for those who have been out in the field, Plumpy Nut is one that's made um, by a French company, um, Nutriset, and that's um, available. And the thing is you have to encourage the, the mom to breastfeed still if the child is still in that age range. If, um, if they're still kind of recently weaned, you can encourage the mom to um, reestablish breastfeeding because we know that breastfeeding is a lifesaver. And they're found to be really effective. Depending on what brand, they've found that they work pretty well. So we encourage um, access to that and to make it available. Some people want to know, can we make it locally? Yes, it looks like it's more expensive in general, but maybe there's some communities where we can get people together to uh, provide resources. This is a recipe that guides the production of um, your own ready-to-use therapeutic food in the community where you're at. So, in a nutshell, the food has to be the medicine <laughs> for those children. So, I've been talking about both legs of this. There has to be a balance. We have to look at the clinical focus as well as the population level, the social aspects of it. Yes, we're talking about diagnosing, clinical protocols, delivery of services, but without this other part, there's no way we're going to be able to make a difference that we desire to see in the rates of acute malnutrition across the world and especially in communities that are especially affected. So now Prince has been taken care of. Um, we put him in hospital for a few days in the, in the inpatient service, and then he went home with his mom and continued to get um, care and follow up on a frequent basis, and he made it. Hallelujah. Woohoo! But it is not the same story for every child. We wish this would be the outcome for every child that we get to care for, but, and it, takes, it took a, lot, a long time, it took a lot of dedication. And I know that all of us with our compassionate hearts will want to get this, this, every child to this point. But we have to remember it takes a whole community. This is a quote that I found that I think was really very apt, that the greatness of a community is most accurately measured by the compassionate action of its members. We are, we're all Christ followers. We have the heart of Christ. We have the compassion. Whatever we are able to do, wherever we are, creating awareness, supporting and providing advocacy is really important. So we talk of community. I want us to look at the community, not just within the community, the local community of the child. We are part of the community of every child that is suffering acute malnutrition. And there's something you and I can do in whatever little capacity that we have. When you do approach a, um, a community, I want to really emphasize that first line. You need to identify all the stakeholders, the, the leaders in the homes, the leaders in the community. The church, especially, we have a central role. The church never goes away. Governments come, governments go. The church is always there. So whatever we can do to empower the pastors and ministers in our communities, we need to bring them on board. Discuss the barriers. What are the important things that the community wants to get done? Do they recognize that this is a problem? And so we want to make sure in looking at um, bigger pictures, stepping out, stepping back, looking at preventive measures, because remember where we started. We, want, we don't want any child to be malnourished in the first place, and we want to prevent as much as possible the severe forms of it. So these are some of the things we'll need to invest in. This is some of the things we'll need to advocate for. If you've ever talked, learned about sustainable developmental goals, this is UN goals that global, they are also called global goals. By, by 20, 2030, we're less than 10 years from that. It will end hunger and ensure access by all people. But we know that that is not happening yet. But even if we're going to reach close to it, nutrition has to be the centerpiece. When we're talking with children, 
five years and younger, nutrition has to be what we're talking about all the time. And, you know, I think about Jesus' words to us. As I said to Peter, feed my flock. We have to be committed to feeding them spirit, soul, and body. I have this schematic for you to look at at, at your leisure. But I've come to the end of it. And the things I want to remind us as we go away is undernutrition is mostly a social problem more than anything else. We have low-tech interventions, mid-upper arm circumference measurements using that band is really important. Community management is the cornerstone of caring for children that have acute malnutrition. And we need to motivate the community. Everybody needs to play their part. There's a common African adage that it takes a village to raise a child. It will take every member of the village. And I want to say that you are a part of that village. I am a part of that village. And whatever we can do as believers, as um, members of the body of Christ, it will make a big difference. Okay. I will take a few questions if we have any. Absolutely, and that is very heartbreaking. I've been in some of those um, communities, when, especially when I worked with um, World Relief and the, the remote places. One of the things that we, we did was that we created, you know, because you can't come without having even the slightest flicker of hope. Yeah. So we come in and empower, do our best to provide education first. Let them realize and recognize that this is not normal. It might have been their normal for a long time, but this is not normal and there is a way out. So things as little as having a home garden when the rains, when is the rainy season, those are some of the things we talk about. What are the things that they can plant that's within their control? You don't have to go to the market for it. You can get the children in the community to be part of that community garden. You could put it in your backyard. Things like carrots, um, whatever local vegetable they have, little things that oftentimes they don't even know that they have the capacity for. Because when people have gotten used to external aid, oftentimes they just don't even think that they have anything to offer. So the um, World Relief was the organization that I worked with at that time and went out. We always looked for partners within the community. We call the parents, the family, the volunteers, the partners, and we empower them. We give them those tools. But I completely agree with you. And some, depending on, especially on the time where you get in there, you might not have much to, for, it might not appear like they have much to offer, but bringing education and giving them hope and the tools to get out of that cycle is what I would encourage. It won't happen overnight. It might not be this season that changes. It might be the next season that there will be a difference. Thank you for that question. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. I know a lot of times having safe water is also an issue. So if you're nutritionally compromised and then you don't have clean water and then a child is susceptible to disease, how are those two issues combined and can be addressed together because I know clean water is an issue and to be able to give them access to that or even like you say the education to know mm-hmm. this is the source mm-hmm. this is part of our problem so again education mm-hmm. because sometimes we just don't even know that that water is not is the source of the diarrheal illness so being able to get them to come to that understanding is a huge thing 
where you help people understand you need to separate drinking water from every other kind of water. And the source of the water, and it takes a lot, I'll tell you, it takes a lot. And if you've been involved in doing any committee work, you know, it takes re- repetition. It's, we're all kind of creatures of habit, what we've done, what we want to keep doing. So helping people get even the, the, the smallest thing, sometimes it might just be getting a, a separate clay pot that they will put the drinking water in and have just one cup that stays, that, that clay, cup, clay pot is covered, and you have just one, water, one cup that goes into the clay pot, nothing else. You, that way you minimize the, um, the, the chances of getting that water contaminated. Of course, the question, if the water came from a contaminated source already, that's a different ball game altogether. And sometimes the, the local things that, we, that people have made available, like the sedimental stones and things like that that they can put at the bottom, and the, whatever is available locally, as much as possible, is what, what you want to encourage them with. But I tell you, education goes a long way in helping people understand and making the connection between what is causing and what, what are the risk factors for the things that we encounter. Um, I know we're exactly at 6 o'clock. No. Five o'clock. That clock there is six, six o'clock. Daylight saving has happened, and that clock is not aware of it. Thank you. Thank you all so much for your time. If you have any questions, I'll be chatting.